Hi, my name's Stephen, and uh, I've got the privilege of taking us through our next uh, part of our series that we're doing through the summer called True Faith, where we are looking at the lives of men and women of the faith down through the, the years and uh, centuries. And so this is number four. We've done uh, Hudson Taylor, John Knox, and Abraham Kuyper over the last few weeks. Maybe you know some of the names, maybe not. Go back and take a listen. Uh, maybe that you've been tracking with us, or maybe you're just here on holiday or just visiting. You're really welcome. Thanks for joining us. I hope you find this evening informative. I hope you find it interesting. But most, more than that, and the thing I'm praying for is that you find some heart change going on for you this evening. That's been my prayers. I've been preparing this, that you know something more of God's love for you. And uh, whether you've been walking with Jesus for many years, uh, you know a close bond with him, or maybe you don't know him at all. You know what? Jesus does love you does know your name and does know that you're going to be sitting in your seat this evening listening to this. And so my, really my prayer is that you would engage and that you would hear it and it would do something in your mind and your heart and your life that would lead to lasting fruit. And so tonight we're looking at the next character in our series. And we're looking at our first woman uh, that we've looked at so far. We're looking at Corrie Ten Boom's life. And uh, I put out a Facebook poll a few weeks ago saying, who do you want me to preach on? And she won. And so she's the popular one. And so she is going to, uh, who she's going to look at. So yeah, we're looking at the lives of different people. Now, Corrie Ten Boom, she's a Dutch lady. She was born in 1892. And I'm going to describe some stuff about her life in just a moment. But why at our church, when we should be looking at God's Word, are we looking at people instead? Well, the reality is we're going to do both. We are going to look at God's Word. We're going to look at some passages from the Bible this evening as well. But as we look at the Bible, we see that imitating and looking at the lives of others is something that we're instructed to do. The Apostle Paul said to those that he, were, he was writing to, look at my life and imitate me. It's okay for us to look at other men and women in the faith and say, what is it about their life that is good? What is it about their life that is God glorifying? Can I imitate them? Can I copy them in that way? That's a good thing for us to do. So hopefully if you are part of this church, Emmanuel, there's some people around you who think, yeah, they're men of women that I want to imitate. Or if you're from somewhere else, maybe there's other people that you have some face-to-face uh, face -face contact with. You think, I want to be like them. And that's hopefully true for all of us as believers. Uh, but even if it's not, there's plenty of men and women right down through history where we can read books and learn about their lives and be inspired and choose to follow in their footsteps. I know for me, part of my, my kind of growth in God and maturity in the Christian faith has been massively shaped by reading Christian biographies over the year. Reading about men and women who took Jesus seriously at his word and did great exploits for him. So I encourage you to do the same. As we look at this series, this series is all about having faith. And uh, faith is not just a uh, kind of a frame of mind. It's not just a thought process. Faith involves us doing things. Faith is an active thing. We're looking at the book of James in the New Testament. Jesus' brother writes about the fact that our faith is not attached to works or not attached to action. Is it really faith at all? If you believe something, then it follows, it tracks that something will uh, change in your life. Well, you'll act in a certain way as a result. For instance, I believe that my wife is the most awesome woman. I also believe in the institution of marriage, that God's given it as a good gift. And therefore, I acted. I put a ring on it. 
You know what I'm saying? There's an act that comes as a result of what I believe, the convictions in my heart. When you love Jesus, it's not about acting to try and please him. But when you love Jesus and you know him and you want to follow him, it results in our faith being followed by action. As we look at Corrie Ten Boom's life, we see that she is a woman who put her faith into action. And uh, there's lots of ways that we could look at Corrie's life. I'm, I'm a big fan of Corrie Ten Boom, just to give you a heads up. And uh, I, 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 I've read many of her books and, uh, and I've even listened to some of the books on audio recently. So uh, it wasn't read by her. She's a Dutch lady, but it was read by someone else. But I think in my mind, I, I know pictures of her. I read lots of her teachings and writings and the story about her life and her family and her history. And now I've kind of heard it read to me as well. I've got kind of a picture of who she is. In reality, she died two years after I was born. So I've never met her. But I have a kind of connection with her and a love for her as my Christian sister in Christ. And I look forward to being in heaven and getting to meet her face to face and hearing more of her stories and maybe sharing some of my stories with her. But there is, as I look at her life and the many facets of it and what God has done, there's lots of things I could share about her faith this evening. Things that are like her reliance on God, her utter trust in what he said. Her conviction that uh, God speaks today. Trust the prophetic and his direction in her life her desire to see people healed and to pray for them, her compassion for the poor, her love for the nations and particularly the Jewish people. Loads of things we could talk about and look at tonight. But well, the one thing I'm going to look at is going to look at what does faith look like in Croy Ten Boone's life in terms of how she loved. How did she love? And how therefore must we love? How does faith affect the way that we love. So let me give you a little, uh, just quick overview of Corrie's life. As we go through the sermon, we'll look at other bits and pieces, but I thought I'd just give you a quick overview so you know who she is. So she was born in, 19, in sorry, 1892 in a place called Harlem in Holland, and uh, just a little, 30 minutes outside of Amsterdam. And she grew up in a home with her mother and father, Christian mother and father, Casper and Cornelia, and uh, with her two sisters and her older brother, and also her three aunts. They all lived in this one house, not a very big house. They all lived together in this house above her father's watch making or watch repairer's shop, a shop that she then later worked in. And uh, she never married, although in her early 20s, she did fall in love. And uh, she uh, fell in love with a guy who basically kind of said that he was going to marry her, but then didn't. He actually got engaged to someone else and married into wealth and status instead of marrying this poor girl from Harlem. And her heart was broken. And I even just read the story about how God helped restore her heart, how God took the love that she had for that man and used it for uh, good. It's, it's an amazing story. But she never married. And uh, she lived in one sense quite an unremarkable life but just a faithful life to following Jesus and living with her family. The remarkable, bit, remarkable part of her life comes, or the bit we hear about most, the reason she came to the kind of spotlight is because when the Second World War arrived, Holland, who had been neutral during the First World War and had tried to keep out of the war up until that point, but in 1940, Germany invaded Poland, uh, invaded Poland yes, but then Holland as well, and took over Holland and were occupying it. And uh, as part of the occupation, they were persecuting the Jews, which I'm sure you, all of you would be aware of. And uh, this Christian family, uh, at that point, 
started realizing that they needed to get involved with resisting the evil that was going on. And so they joined the Dutch resistance. That means they helped uh, get Jews to safe places. It means that they found ways to get ration cards so they could be fed and all kinds of other things, including eventually having and hiding Jews in their house. In fact, in Corrie's own bedroom on the top floor of their house in Harlem, putting up a false wall with a particular kind of uh, special secret door. And they would hide people there for a season. Fortunately, that season didn't last all that long in reality. And as someone and part of another a fellow Dutch person betrayed them to the German authorities. And uh, Corrie, her sister Betsy and her father, her mother had died by this point, were taken to prison along with some of their colleagues and, and uh, friends who were helping out with the resistance. And they were put in prison uh, where Corrie was in solitary confinement for four months and uh, where her father died. And eventually Corrie and her sister Betsy were taken off to a concentration camp in Holland for a while in appalling conditions, uh, which were, are heartbreaking to read about. And at this point, Corrie is 52 years old and her sister Betsy is 58. And uh, they went from that concentration camp in Holland and as the war got closer and closer, as the Allies kind of uh, uh, pushed back the German forces, all the people in the concentration camps in Holland were taken into the midst of Germany, taken to the notorious concentration and extermination camp in Ravensbrück. And there they spent a season at the hands of the Nazis, treated incredibly cruelly, all kinds of evil and trauma and difficulty they faced. But the wonderful story we read is in the midst of that dark place, Jesus' light shone brightly. Shone brightly in the lives of these two amazing women as they shared the truth of who Jesus was with the prisoners that they were with. Eventually, uh, Betsy... Petsy Tenboom died in the prison and uh, soon after Corey was actually ended up being released uh, before the end of the war and uh, when the war ended Corey then spent three decades travelling the globe with the message and good news of who Jesus is that although there are deep and dark dank places that Jesus' love and his goodness is deeper still literally travelling to all the continents of the world, this amazing message and writing many books that you can read. And I would love to encourage you to read A Hiding Place uh, by Corey Ten Boom. Read that book. It will do your heart good. It will excite you about the, Christ, the Christian life in case you're not excited about it already. I'm not about to do her story justice tonight, so please grab a hold of that. And she did remarkable things, eventually dying at the ripe old age of 91 leaving an amazing legacy, never having children of our own, but seeing many others born to Christ. So this story is a story that we're going to look at this evening through the lens of how did Corrie know God's love? Love expressed at the cross by Jesus dying and shedding his blood for all those that believe in him, that, her, that she could be forgiven, that she could walk with her heavenly father day by day. This amazing love. That's what we're going to look at this evening. But before we looked at that, I thought it would be great to turn to the Bible and a look at the, the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a passage that we often read at weddings. In fact, I had it read at my own wedding. And uh, often think about, oh, this is what husband and wives should be like. Actually, this is the love that God has for you. 
We'll read about the different descriptions of love in just a moment. This is the kind of love that God has for us. Emmanuel, this is how God loves you. And this is how we're to love others. Now read it to us. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And skipping down to verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now scripture paints a pretty big picture of what love is. A high standard for us to attain. So I think it'd be appropriate for, for us to pray before we look any further. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. Truth that is living and active. And we pray, God, would it be living and active in our lives as we, even as we listen this evening? That we might grasp afresh your amazing love for us that is higher, wider, deeper and longer than we can comprehend. We need your Holy Spirit's power and help to really know it. That we might experience it for ourselves and that we might express it to others. We might express it to our city and to a hurting world who need you, Jesus. So I pray, pray, please help me as I speak and help the rest of us as we listen, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The response of the Ten Boon family to the plight of the Jews, although amazing, isn't very surprising. When you read the way they conducted the rest of their life up until the point when Corey turned 52, you see that it's just a natural outflow of how they lived. They took the scriptures very seriously when it talked about love. They knew they were to love the Lord God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength, with everything they are, and to love the neighbour as themselves. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandments, that's how he answered. Love the Lord God and love your neighbour. And they took it seriously. They practised these two commandments faithfully, reading the scripture and praying together daily. Corey's mother and father instilled in their children a love for God, a living relationship with Jesus, not a mere faith or religion, no, a living, breathing, dynamic relationship with their heavenly Father and with His Son, Jesus. And this relationship overflowed to their neighbours, whoever they may be. So as you read the story of the Ten Boon family, you realise that they expressed love to their customers in their watchmaker's shop, to their apprentices who would come and work with them, to the rival up the street who would kind of find out what was going on to try and steal ideas or knock down their own prices to undercut them. Express love to them. Expressing love to the poor in all the communities in Harlem, even though they themselves were poor and not very well off. They would look after young people, starting Bible studies and activities for them. Looking after adults with disabilities and learning difficulties where society at that time didn't really pay them much attention. This family took responsibility for them, loving them. For soldiers stranded far away from their families, 
and for those who are sick. And whenever it was someone's birthday, time and time you read again that they would love to celebrate. Just make an iced bun, send a note to honour and bless those in the community around them. Finding ways to bless. We talk a lot about that as a church. Hey, these guys are just living it out 100 years ago. In Corey's house, her mother was really the centre of how this worked. Her mother, who was very poorly most of her life, always was seeking ways to bless others. Always making extra batch of soup or bread in ways to bless those who had less than they did. Or some that had more than they had, but they're still in need. And uh, her, her mother's life is really quite remarkable. Because in the last three years of uh, her life, she was paralysed, essentially. Had just a small movement of her hands and only had three words. Could only say yes and no and curry. Those are the words that she could say. And looking at her life, you'd think, well, you lived your life serving Jesus and this was your lot. That you spent the last three years in difficulty and suffering, shutting your own body, unable to get out and even gaze at the sky. But what did her mother do with her time and with her, the faculties that she had left? Well, she continued to bless the community around her. She would communicate with the three words that she had with Corey in kind of Morse code and a kind of 20 questions game, saying, who is it that she wanted to write to? Whose birthday has she remembered? Who is it that needed to bless? And would do that in the remaining years of her life. And she could have been in a place of just self-pitying, thinking of herself. She continued to think of others, continued to love God and love other people. It was therefore no surprise when the, when the Jewish people began to suffer that the natural response of these faithful people was love, and care and protection. The Jewish people were despised by Nazi Germany and many in Holland would think the same of them too. The Ten Boons' faith was different from theirs, but they welcomed them into their home. They sought ways to bless them and save them and protect them. Finding common ground in which to, to communicate with them. Knowing the Old Testament was something they could debate and speak about, to laugh and love together. While in prison, Corey was sent in prison because of she was a Jewish sympathiser, because she was hiding them away, because she was helping them. But one of her greatest highlights of being in prison was finding out through a secret note that those that she had been hiding in a secret room in her bedroom had all got away. Can you imagine being in prison, being in solitary confinement? She was also very ill. The only company she had was an ant that she used to feed crumbs to just to keep her mind active, just to keep some kind of kind of a routine in her life, in that place of darkness and despair, the thing that great, great, brought her great joy was knowing the Jewish people that she'd served were free and fine. Can you imagine that? Surely the tendency would be to think, was it really worth helping them? Now I find myself in this situation that my father who was here has died in prison after 10 days of being there, now a very elderly man. Was it really worth it? She's like, yes, it was. To love Jesus and to love these people. That was the joy of a daughter of God. What about you? Who is your neighbour? Customers or apprentices, people around about, those with needs. Is your natural reaction when you see need to be like the 10 booms? Was it to help, to love, to care and protect? I can't always say that my answer is yes to that. It's often inconvenient. It's often uncomfortable. 
But it's the call on us of those who have faith to put our faith into action. If that's not where you're at right now, let me tell you, you need to work harder. I'm joking. It's not about working harder. It's about being like the 10 rooms. What do they do? They learn to love God first. And more importantly, to know God's love. They got to know the one who was lavish in his love, who loved them, cared for them and protected them. When they knew that, their hearts were full to overflowing with love for others. It became a natural response where they saw need before you, before them. If you don't naturally respond with love to those with need before you, I encourage you, go to God, receive more of his love and let that overflow to others. Why were the 10 booms so convinced of Jesus' love? Well, because they'd experienced and lived in it through the scriptures. They loved the Bible. They loved the word of God so much. They lived in 1 Corinthians 13 and many other verses like them, knowing that it was the reason for their hope. It was the light to their feet, a guide for them. It's the only thing that held the message that they needed for each day, for daily living, and also held out the hope that the world needed in its brokenness. Corrie, in her life, she was not some great theologian. There'll be other people we look at over this series who are great theologian, men and women who uh, study the word deeply, looked at the scriptures in their original languages, all that kind of stuff. Corrie wasn't one of them. She wasn't a great theologian in that sense, but she lived great theology. She lived out in her speech and in her life. If you read her readings and her books, they're littered with Bible verses and quotes. Because she knew that the only hope in this world is God's word. It's the only hope for eternal life. And this love for the word is modelled by her parents. I would love to just preach a sermon on Corrie's parents. They're a wonderful moral model of Christian parenting. Every opportunity, just a speaking truth. And when Corrie was, was in prison, she was uh, smuggled a parcel of soap and safety pins and some other essentials and rations. But in it were also the four Gospels, the four stories of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, she treasured them most highly. Although having them put her in grave danger from uh, kind of further solitary confinement and further kind of sanctions, she prized them precious. She would want to offer them to other prisoners, but other prisoners wouldn't take them because there would be danger. But she said, no, I want to have the word of God with me at all times. And when Corey and Betsy ended up in the concentration camp, they had a Bible in a pouch. They hung a string down the back, uh, or, or, uh, around their neck or down their backs to keep it hidden from the guards. And uh, they thanked God all the time that they had the word with them, that it was not taken, that it was never found by the prison guards. In fact, when they first arrived in Ray, Ravensbrook, they were stripped naked and they had to parade past some guards. And they, how are we going to keep it secret? But God found a way. I found a way for them to stash it somewhere uh, while they were being uh, scrutinised and got it back later. And as they got patted down, as they left, uh, as they were given their prison dresses and were kind of marched out to the barracks, they were all searched again. And the person in front of Corrie was searched thoroughly. The person behind Corrie got searched thoroughly, but Corrie was not touched. And the Bible was not taken which meant she was able to keep it for the whole time that she was there, share it with her sister and share it with the many women that were, there, that were there as well. Able to share the love that the pages contain. Have you learned to love the Word of God like that? That it's your most treasured possession? It's so easy for us, isn't it? 
We can just type it into Google. There's Bibles are ten a penny for us. I've got plenty of them. Just you just kind of accumulate them maybe as a Christian over your life. They're not hard to get hold of. But do you treasure it? Do you realize they're the words of God to you? I don't know if you've ever received a letter from someone important or maybe a letter from a loved one who's far away. It's the kind of thing you would treasure. And the Bible is God's love letter to you. Do you treasure it in that way? I was away recently uh, at New Day. Uh, it's our kind of youth summer festival that we help run. And uh, there was a speaker there uh, I was speaking to. And uh, he was a mechanic before he was a, a pastor, before he was a, a church leader. And uh, he was dyslexic at school, not academic at all, still hates reading. He's quite honest. He said, I have to read for my job, but I don't really like it particularly. But I love reading the Word of God because the precious jewels that it contains and the love that God expresses to me through it, the revelation of who He is. It's good for us, if you're a believer here, to discipline yourself in terms of reading the Word, to get a plan in place and all that kind of stuff. Discipline is good. But let me encourage you, there's so much more for us. We're meant to be those who delight in God's Word. And if you're not in a place of delight right now, say, God, please help me delight in the Word. That it might be something that feeds me, that I look forward to getting into it. It's not a drudge, it's not a drain, but something that gives me life. That I might find Jesus' love in the pages of it. We don't just want to know generic truth. We want to live in the daily passages that we read. Knowing Jesus' love meant that Betsy and Corrie could trust God completely in the concentration camps. Even when they went from, from the Holland into the depths of Germany, but went to this notorious prison camp where they know that people were being killed daily, where they could see the chimney of the crematorium as bodies were disposed of. Corrie, who was 52, and Betsy, who was 58 at that time, were ill. They were malnourished. As they, as they arrived, they had to search their souls again. Can we trust God? Can we have our faith fully in them? And they turned to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. It said this, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As I looked at that passage, there was doubt in Corey's heart. Can I trust God for everything that is before us? Can I thank Him for all circumstances? Can I really thank Him for being refugees in this nation, put in this concentration camp? As they began to pray together and talk together, meditate together, like, yeah, we can be thankful. We can be thankful that our father is dead, that he didn't last long, that he didn't have to go through these horrendous ordeals, that he's now with his father in heaven, that he's with the one he loves most, with Jesus. They're able to thank God that with the hundreds of new women that they'd never met before, that they might share the love that they'd received. They might preach the gospel and pray and minister peace and love and joy to them. But as they did that, Corrie looked down and then she went to lay down on, on the mattresses of straw they were given. And as she did, the whole mattress began to move. So covered in fleas was it. She turned to bed and said, but how can we thank God for the fleas? They're so grim, so disgusted, so denigrated, so humiliated. How can I then thank God for this? And Betsy was truthful about it. I don't know why we can be thankful. I just know that we need to be because that's what God's words said. So in faith, they thanked God for their circumstance and thanked God for the fleas. And uh, 
the wonderful thing is, as you continue to read the story, Betsy and Corey begin to minister to the women in that camp. Many women traumatised by their ordeals up until that point and facing ongoing brutality and harshness, things that maybe you've read about before about World War II. Just the, it's just grim, it's disgusting, it's horrifying, honestly, to read and sometimes it's easier not to. But the reality was harsh and horrible. But in the midst of it, these two women held services daily for the women, praying with them, teaching them the word, teaching them who God was, leading many of them into great joy in the midst of those evil places. And they were surprised that how are we able to carry on doing this day after day in these barracks? Why don't the guards stop us? And eventually it came to light. They could do it. Why? Because of the fleas. The guards were so fearful of coming in contact with the fleas, they would not enter the barracks. It's because of those fleas that these two women were able to minister the love of God to others. These two women were able to have amazing perspective on the harshness and the brutality of those camps. Even the times that they were uh, stripped naked, standing for male guards who were denigrating, denigrating them, feeling humiliated and horrible inside, one of the sisters suddenly just knew God speak to her and say, you know what? Jesus was also stripped naked for us. And in that moment, a warm glow filled them both. And what turned from a humiliating experience turned to a wonderful worshipful experiencing, thanking Jesus that he had done that for them. In the camp, prisoners were not uh, referred to by their names, but referred to by numbers. Corey was 66729, Betsy 66730. But again, although that was difficult to bear, dehumanised, again they remembered that Jesus knew their name. They knew the name even before he created the world. Chosen and beloved, daughters of the King. The love they received, they longed to pass on to others. And often their conversations in their camp would turn to what next? When the war is finished, when we're finally released from this, what will we do to help the many hundreds, thousands, millions of people affected by the war? I've begun to dream about it, looking at the situation, thinking, how can we help these people? How can we help them pass a trauma when we leave this place, knowing that Jesus is the answer? Now, one day as they're looking at one of their fellow prisoners being beaten by a guard, Betsy says to Corey, how they need the love of Jesus to heal them and make them whole. Corey agrees with Betsy. She said, yes, it must, it's important. We take care of those who have suffered so poorly. But then realise that Betsy is not referring to the one being beaten, referring to the one doing the beating. So full of love was she, as she saw those that are doing the horrible things. What had gone on in their life that he brought to such a place where they could commit such evil acts? And Betsy knew that, hey, the prison guards need the love and forgiveness of God as well. After Betsy had died, Corey herself had to wait to be released. And uh, because she was not in a fit state, she had an edema in her legs, so it's hard to walk. She was not in a fit state. She had to go to the prison hospital, which was a rancid place. It wasn't a place of care, but a place where prisoners were just chucked, waiting to die. And it was full of all kinds of bodily fluids and, and, and grimness. But the worst thing about it was the hearts of those that were there. Patients so full of bitterness and hate. And uh, Corey did one night there. And he could hear people shouting out in German. 
The next morning, like, what was that you were shouting at in Germany? They were shouting for bedpans. Bed-ridden, uh, kind of bed-bound people, unable to get out of bed, unable to go to latrines, were calling out for bedpans, but no one was there to serve them. So in her pain, in her agony, she found God's love for those there and begun to serve them with the bedpans, even in her own need. She speaks of how peace descended upon the hospital, how decency and dignity was restored in that place. You read stories like that, it puts your own life in some kind of perspective. As I read these things, like, oh, the things I moan about is quite unbelievable. I have a mantra. I say, no, it's so annoying. I say it literally all the time. I say, someone in, someone in my family's left something out, or I've had to stop at a traffic light. I'm like, oh, my life is so hard and difficult and annoying. You read things like this, you realize, oh, God, give me perspective. Lord, how you can use even these little annoyances for your glory and for my good. Lord, an opportunity to serve my family yet again. An opportunity to stop and be patient at a traffic light. And maybe that, I have very few annoyances in my life, really. But maybe you're in great suffering. God knows it. God can use it for your good and for the benefit of others. Even difficult people in your lives I have difficult people in my lives, in my life, I really do. And uh, some people who actually hate me in my life, to be honest with you, and are, are, are really downright nasty. You know what? God knows that they're there. And God says, has said to me, you're my son. You're to love them. I loved you when you were my enemy. I was an enemy of God at one point in my sin against offensive towards a holy God. You know what? If someone is offensive towards me, well, I get to express the same love that God did to me. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Corey and Betsy demonstrated this impeccably. Think, how do we help those who hate us? How do we love them? Is that how you express it? If you're not loving those who are difficult in your life right now, or you're quick to moan and complain, Try harder. No, don't try harder. Do like Corey and Betsy did. Go to God the Father, who loves you with a lavish, overflowing, generous love. Now it gives you power and strength, warmth in your heart, goodness towards others. That's the place in which we can love other people. Corey didn't go around floating on clouds though. She was a person just like us. Disappointments did come her way. She did harbour anger in her heart at times towards others, even in her Christian ministry post the war. People who hurt her or said bad things about her. But she knew that forgiveness was not a place, unforgiveness, sorry, was not a place to be as a daughter of Christ. She who had been forgiven so much could not withhold it from others. Love demanded that she forgive and bless. While she was in the camp in Holland, she realised that it was her fellow Dutch, uh, Dutch people who had, who had betrayed them, that had resulted in the death of her father and the mistreatment of her friends and others too. And she began to go so angry about it, to the point where she could not attend the services that her and her sister had been hosting. And eventually she had to confess it to her sister. And Betsy, who I love her story, you know, Corey's on me, we hold up, but really Betsy is often the hero just spoke to her and said, it's time to confess your unforgiveness. Come and receive God's forgiveness for your unforgiveness. 
And uh, Corey had to admit her hatred towards those who had betrayed her, realizing that the Bible and Jesus equates hatred with murder. And she was no more murderous, no more hateful than they were, and needed Jesus' forgiveness. And once she had received it, she was able to forgive them as well. I mentioned earlier that Betsy's desire was not just to show love and care for those who were suffering in the prisons, but for the guards too. When she arrived at Ravensbrook, she said, we can teach them how to love. And as the near the end of her life, before she died of a sickness, she actually was beginning to dream and envision what their life could be like after the camps. A dream and vision that she never got to see on earth herself. She had to dream of a house where she could help those who are traumatised uh, by it. And she shared it with Corrie and Corrie got hold of it. And after the war, a woman came and gave the house that they, they had envisioned. And they were to open it up and help those who had suffered so much. But Betsy also dreamed of the extermination camps being, being uh, camps not of death, but of life. Of them being repurposed after the war. Instead of being abandoned, going back in, taking down the fences, putting window boxes in the windows. And being places where those who had lost their homes through bombing or lost their homes, all kinds of things could come and receive love and God for themselves. And sure enough, that's what happened. After the war, Corey was given a camp to run, not for evil, but for love and goodness and holiness. And they began to dream that afterwards they might tell the whole world that uh, though they had been in the deepest pit, Jesus' love was deeper still. One of the most famous stories of Corey Ten Boom, one that we've mentioned many times from this platform before, is a time when she was in Germany, a nation that needed her to visit many times, a place that was left in such a traumatic place after the war, with many people broken. And uh, she would visit it often, tell her story, share who Jesus was. And after one service, Sunday service, she'd been sharing about God's love and his forgiveness. And people had been greeting her and thanking her afterwards. Through the crowd came a man dressed with a brown hat and a brown coat. But in the moment, she suddenly saw him in his uniform from the time that she last saw him in the prison showers. There, degrading her and her sister and the other women inmates as they went through that camp. A man who had committed great atrocities. He comes up to her and he holds out his hand and says, Sister in Christ, isn't it wonderful that God does forgive? That I've been forgiven for all the wrong that I committed during the war. That I can know Jesus' peace in my life and know I'm going to be with him forever. And Corey, in that moment, could not reach out her hand. There was too much anger, too much hate, too much hurt in her heart. She loved her family and seen them suffer so much. How could she forgive this man? But she knew as a daughter that was her duty. And she said there in the moment, just quietly in her head, said, Jesus, please help me to forgive. And she looked at the man again. The man continued to talk. Nothing changed. She couldn't forgive him. How could she forgive such harshness at the hands of this man? So she prayed again. God, I know that you're a God of forgiveness. You have forgiven me for my wretchedness. Help me to forgive him for what he has done. In that moment, she just knew God's prompting to reach out her hand. And as she did and grasped the hand of her Christian brother, the love and wave of forgiveness just came through her. And she knew just peace in her heart. She knew what it was to forgive him for what he had done. When God tells you to love your enemies, he gives you the love that he demands of you. 
He demands forgiveness from us, but he gives us the power to forgive. Corey wrote, and so I discovered it took a lot of love. Not the kind of love that we can muster up. Not the kind of love that we can just work hard at. No, a love that comes from heaven, comes from God himself. Time and time again, Corey speaks of the love of God given to us and the expectation for us to give, not for our own efforts or the well of our own love, but from the overflowing God by his Holy Spirit. Jesus plants the love in our hearts. When our homes are dark and it's light outside, we don't try and sweep the darkness out. No, we simply open the curtains and let God's light and let, let the light in. That's what we're asked to do. Do you know God's love and light and forgiveness? You haven't got to muster that up. You simply got to receive it. And then you can express it to others. Do you have unforgiveness in your heart? Do you have unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone? Have you got people in your life who've hurt you deeply? Is it worse than what Corey experienced? It could be, that's the case. But Jesus' love is deeper still. His forgiveness for you is greater than any forgiveness you could ever offer to someone else. And he can give you the power to do it. When he tells you to love your enemies, he gives you the love that he demands of you. Have you let his light into your hearts? Do you know that Jesus is deeper than the deepest pit and the deepest hurt? Let me finish by quickly telling a story. Last story. And that is a part of Corrie traveling the world. Again, she travels a journey many times. And one time she traveled soon after the war. And uh, in Berlin, there was an abandoned factory uh, where uh, many refugees who had lost their homes, people without anywhere else to go, had ended up being living crammed in there with nothing but curtains to separate their quarters. No privacy, very lack of dignity, downtrodden, very poor and destitute. And she was invited to go and speak to them. And she, she turned it down and said, I cannot speak to these people. What do I know of the suffering that they have been through? But instead, she said, but can I come and live with them? So she moved into the factory for a few months. She came and lived alongside them, listened to them, heard their hurts, heard their stories, and beginning to just minister God's love to them one-on-one and begin to see change in that place. As I read that again this week, so reminded of Jesus. Now Jesus could have stayed far off, could have kind of just preached his message to us, but he didn't. He came to earth, came and lived among us, lived a wretched life, died a wretched death for us, that we might know his love and light, that he might understand what it is for, to live as a person in this world, to live as a human, to live as a man amongst us, and that we might receive his love. I don't know where you're at this evening. Hopefully this message has been some encouragement to you if you're a believer in Christ already. But maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe even as I'm speaking, you're thinking this love seems too good to be true. How could a woman, how could these ladies uh, kind of be sustained by just this love of someone in heaven? Is this love that I can know from my circumstances? The answer is yes. This love is true and it's real and it's for you and you can have it today. Jesus is standing here knocking at the door of your heart saying, let me in. Let me love you. Let me take away the wrong that you have done. Let me help you forgive the wrong that's been done against you. That you might walk into life and light, into goodness and into purpose that he has for you. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for a life well lived. Corey was not perfect by any means, but she serves as a wonderful reminder of what it is to have faith in you and the outcome that we can have when we trust in you and trust in your wonderful love for us. And I pray that we might grab a hold of this uh, greatly, that we might be those that are full of your love, full of your Holy Spirit, that we might receive it and enjoy it. And as a result, then express it to others. Not that we might those who try harder, but experience a deeper sense of your goodness towards us, that we might be good to others, might be good to those in our families, in our friendship groups, even to those who mean us harm, that we might do good to them, that we might share your message of forgiveness with them, we pray. And I do pray for those who don't yet know you. Lord, I pray, Jesus, would you, by your grace, win them to yourself. I pray, would there be a turning in their hearts to you, even this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.